Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast. And today I have a fascinating guest in studio with me. He's a colleague, a really good friend and a mentor. And he's the professor of rheumatology, the versus arthritis professor of rheumatology in the Division of Medicine at University College London. He trained in St. Bart's and he is well known around the world for his work on lupus. And in fact, he was the first recipient out of North America of the Evelyn Hess Award from the Lupus Foundation, an incredibly prestigious prize, which really is a testament to his lifelong dedication to the work in lupus, which is a rheumatological condition and that we will talk about a little bit this morning, I'm sure. But in addition to all of these amazing accomplishments in medicine, this guest has very, very unbelievable hidden talents. And his other pseudo-identity is as Lupus Dave. He is a musician. So join me in welcoming my lovely friend, Professor David Eisenberg. David, welcome. Thank you very much, Mary. You're very, uh, very kind of invitation as your very kind introduction. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to have you here. And we've been friends for quite a long time, but... In preparing this interview, I learned even more about you and your um, hidden talents. But I thought we'd start off this morning by just talking a little bit about the inspiration behind your work, you know, as a as a physician, as a musician. And maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and how you got to be, be Lupus Dave. Well, that's, that's very kind of Well, I should just talk to you about the medicine first. I, I come from a family of doctors. My my father, my sister, five uncles were all physicians. I have a cousin who's a nurse, another one who trained to be a radiographer. In fact, my cousin who's a dentist is regarded as the renegade of the family, you know, the one, the one who got away. So uh, there was not much doubt, actually, uh, what I was going to do. In fact, I remember going to the school library when I was 15 years old and getting out a book on careers. And I got to page two. And I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. I know I'm going to be just, just going to be a doctor. Get on with it. Just just close the book and get on with it, which is what I did. Then I decided to decide where I was going to go, and I decided that uh, uh, St. Bartholomew's, where my father trained, actually looked like a pretty good medical school. So I went there and uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, now, most of my relatives were general practitioners, but I think I realized early on I didn't want to do that. I wanted to become an expert at something. The problem was I didn't have a clue what it was going to be. When I was um, a medical student, I was uh, very well taught in psychiatry. The course at Barts was very well taught. And I thought for quite a long time that's what I would end up doing. But perhaps there was always a little doubt in my mind because I would do, as you could do in those days, six months of one thing, six months of another thing, unlike the very rigid training programs we have today. So I, I was sort of playing the field and I did some metabolic bone disease, I did some neurology at Queen's Square, I did some general medicine. But it was really serendipity which really got me involved in rheumatology and, and lupus in particular. Uh, I was working as a registrar uh, in the Division of Medicine and the professorial unit, actually, University College Hospital, and we admitted a patient overnight, lovely Irish lady, actually, and uh, and I was in fact to go and look after her for twenty odd years subsequently, uh, though I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and she obviously had very acute rheumatoid arthritis, and I invited the then recently appointed uh, uh, specialist in rheumatology at UCH, a lovely guy called Mike Snaith, to come and see her. And quite by chance, I was on the ward when he when he came to see her, and really I could have been anywhere in the hospital but I was there and I went to see the patient with him 
and we got chit-chatting afterwards and he said what, what are you going to do uh, what's your career plan I said well I was thinking about psychiatry but I just don't know I'm probably not and he said well have you ever thought about a career in rheumatology I said never why would I want to do a crazy thing like that and he said there are three reasons he said, number one it's interesting he said I've just started a lupus clinic he said I've got you know, 25 patients uh, I might say we've now got about 775 patients uh, I've got 25 patients he says that's a good reason come and join me It'd be interesting to, to learn about this disease he said number two your chances of advancement in rheumatology are very good and number three he said I have some money. I said, well, what's the story? So it turned out he'd commissioned and, and got a big grant to study plasma exchange in lupus. This was the uh, mid to late 1970s. And uh, he got a five-year grant, uh, five years to pay for a clinician and a basic scientist. And the, base, the, the basic scientist had done a very good job, but the clinician had done a super good job and had finished the, the, the trial, the study, in three years instead of five. So Mike had a two-year salary, didn't have any particular interests to follow at that moment. And so he basically challenged me. He said, well, you know, go and think about it. If you can think of some, some research to do, that would be fun. Uh, and I had, working on this, this professorial unit, become very interested in muscle disease. And I'd been taught how to do muscle needle biopsies, how to process them, cut them up, stain them, etc. So I thought, well, Mike's interested in lupus. I know a little bit about muscle disease. Maybe I can put these two ideas together. So I went off to the library, as one did in those days, and uh, read up about muscle disease and lupus and was pleasantly pleased to discover there was very little known about muscle disease in lupus. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's a bit of a, a, an entree for me. So I went back to Mike and said, look, you've got some patients. I've got this technique. Maybe we could put this together. Maybe I could study muscle disease in lupus. He thought that was a good idea. So he said, right, go away and write the grant. And I said, write a grant? I've never done that in my life before. How do, what do I do? He said, just write it and just make it detailed and put in supporting references. And that's how it all got started. So I wrote my first grant. I got an interview. Much to my amazement, really, I got the money. And then, then I had to start. And uh, again, it was fortunate that Mike was, was tied up very closely with the old Middlesex Hospital Immunology Department, uh, which was led uh, by the very famous Professor Ivan Reut. And I was welcomed into that lab. And uh, my scientific colleague at the time, who was made on the same ground as I was, lovely guy called John Morrow, uh, taught me one end of a pet from another, which is a very helpful that skill to have. And I spent two months doing uh, basic research uh, in, in lupus in general, but also with particular reference to mu uh, muscle disease, the immunopathology of muscle inflammation, and eventually turning around more to the immunopathology of lupus. That's how I kind of got into it. And that's how it all kicked off. Well, that's fascinating. And, you know, as you mentioned, serendipity, but I would also say it was your creative instincts. You were able to put one and two together, myositis and lupus, and create that post and make something of it. And a very, very long and powerful career, which has helped the lives of so many patients that we've all seen. So this is incredible to hear how, how the birth of the career happened. Well, you, you, know, you know the old saying, the pastor saying that chance favours the prepared mind. My, my corollary is that's true, but you've got to have the chance. And I think that was what I was able to do. I, I was given an opportunity and I took it. And I suppose others might not have taken it. That, that, that's what really got me going. And it fired me up because I suddenly realised, and it was it was interesting to reflect on, on my medical school uh, training, well, I never enjoyed doing the practicals in things like biochemistry, for example, because essentially you were, you were given a sheet of paper and you were given a bench and some, some equipment to play with and you were told, go away and add A to B, take away C, add D and you should get E. 
In other words, you weren't given a chance to think. And what was fascinating, has always been fascinating to me, is to ask questions which haven't been asked before, or if they have been, haven't been answered appropriately. And that, that really is the challenge of research. The, the, the beauty of research is that you can ask questions to which the answers are not known. That, that was what, that's what drew me on for, over, over these last 30, 40 years. Interesting that drove you on. And as you know, David, we're doing this podcast in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers at Cambridge University. And, you know, Cambridge students get an amazing degree, but what do you do with that knowledge? And one of the things we're trying to do with the Changemakers program is change how people see the world and what we do. And you've just given a beautiful example of how asking questions can help us, you know, answer them to make the world better for our patients. It's the key. I'm absolutely convinced it's 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 the key to this. I think in order to do better for our patients, we have to understand the nature of their disease better, so that we can come up with novel and hopefully more successful treatments for the patients. I mean, we've seen uh, both in your career and mine, Millie, we've seen amazing advances, but we still don't cure most of these diseases. Uh, you know, it's not like an infection where you might take a course of antibiotics and the thing is gone forever. In patients with this sort of nasty autoimmune rheumatic conditions, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, myositis. We have conditions which we can contain to a much better extent, but we can't cure. We, we're still somewhere off that. Well, I think that's an important point because, you know, the title of this podcast, Live Longer, you know, the implication is how do we help our patients live longer? But, you know, what is the life expectancy of a lupus patient? And with your work, let's say, you know, 40 years ago, it might have been 35, 40 with the advancement in science and your contributions and that of your peers. It's probably prolonged the lifespan of, of our lupus patients. Would you agree with that, David? Yeah, so I, I can. The, the figures are, are actually quite well established. I mean, in 1950, if you were diagnosed with lupus, there was a one in two, 50% chance you're going to be dead in four years. Very, very bleak. And that was mainly because we could do virtually nothing for kidney disease. Steroids had just about been invented. They came in at the end of the late, uh, late 1940s, but we didn't have the very powerful immunosuppressive drugs. We didn't have renal dialysis. We didn't have transplantation. Now it's better to a certain extent. Well, to, to quite a good extent. Now, if you've got lupus, I can say to you, you have a an 85% 15-year survival. So you think, well, that's obviously better than it was 50 years ago, but then you stop and think for a minute and you think, well, that means if you're 20 and I give you a diagnosis of lupus, what I'm also saying to you is there's a one in six, one in seven chance you will be dead by the time you're 35. And seen in that way, you see we've still got a way to go. Um, in, in our huge group of lupus patients, it's the largest group in the UK, as I've said, over 750 lupus patients now, the, the average age of death of the 15% of our patients who have died is 47. Now, the average age of death of a woman in the UK is 80. So for a small but significant number of lupus patients, death continues to come way too soon. And that still is a challenge. And, and that's what one of the things which continues to spur me and, and lots of my colleagues on. Well, you know, many people listening will be familiar with maybe the term lupus, particularly since, you know, a very famous person, Selena Gomez, didn't she have a renal transplant? But not many people will really know what lupus is. Could you tell us in one or two sentences for the people who are not medical, because we forget we're rheumatologists, we're banding around this turn, <laughs> term. 
So uh, l- let me back up and give you a little sort of analogy. The immune system is, is in our bodies consists principally of uh, some of the white blood cells, which float obviously in the blood, but also in the tissues. And they're made up of a number of constituent parts, including lymphocytes, and they are there to protect us. And under normal circumstances, every time you eat and breathe and swallow, millions of viruses and bacteria are pouring into our body all the time. And our body's immune system is like a radar. It spots the incoming virus and bacterium, and it says, wait a minute, you're not part of me. Shoot and destroy. And the immune system is usually very good at distinguishing bits of you from bits of the enemy, the viruses, the bacteria. But unfortunately, and most people I think will know that during the Gulf War on several occasions, the American troops at night lost the ability to distinguish friend their, their side from the enemy. And they killed a number of their own troops. And it was referred to in the press as friendly fire. And autoimmune diseases, of which lupus is one, is an example of friendly fire. Your body's immune system, instead of defending you, begins to attack you. Now, if it attacks your joints, we refer to that as rheumatoid arthritis. If it attacks your pancreas, we refer to it as diabetes. If it attacks elements of your brain and your nervous system, we call it multiple sclerosis. Uh, Lupus is remarkable because, in a sense, it's the immune system kind of attacking itself. Now, it usually affects young women. It's a disease very much of women. 90% of its victims are women, generally in the childbearing years. So it usually develops between about 15 and 50. And the classic appearance is of a rash on the face. It's called a butterfly rash because of its shape. But it often also causes some inflammation of the joints. But the amazing thing about lupus is that nowhere in the body is safe. It can affect anywhere, the liver, the kidney, the lungs, the heart, even on rare occasions, the eyes. So it's a systemic disease, hence the name systemic lupus. Uh, The name lupus comes from the Latin for wolf, and it was held that some of the the skin ulceration uh, resembled the the, the bite of a wolf, or some people believe that the facial appearance resembles that of a wolf. It's slightly fanciful, obviously. But so systemic lupus, nasty autoimmune disease in which no system in the body can, can be said to be safe, usually affects the skin, usually affects the joints, but often affects the kidney, the heart, the lungs and the brain. Obviously, I'm a rheumatologist too, and I deal with um, lupus patients. But when you outline it like that in simple terms, I'm sitting here listening and thinking, goodness, I mean, thank God I don't have lupus. But what about the people who do have lupus? And, you know, it, it, it is definitely a, a life's challenge and struggle for them. And of course, we do the best medicine and of course, we embrace the best sciences to offer. But what else can you give patients, you know, to help them feel well, in addition, to all the best medicine. And that's where, you know, this is coming in with, you know, the what else, you know, and how does music help them? I, I think you told me a story about um, sending a beautiful um, piece of cello music to one of your patients. Yes, yes, you have a very good memory. Uh, this, this is a very sad story, actually. Um, a well-known singer was, um, uh, was somebody who I knew quite well because her father, interestingly, had lupus. This was very unusual because, as I've implied, men don't usually get it, and they certainly don't usually get it in their 60s, which the, this very lovely man had. And he was clearly going to sadly he was going to die we we could see that we would we'd thrown everything at him but in spite of that the disease was in a sense just a little bit too strong for him and there is um, a wonderful cello concerto which i'm very fond and i 
recommended this to um, uh, to the singer because I felt that she needed something that she could go away and just listen to, just to sort of give her life a little bit more balance because she was obviously very, very, very upset that her dad was, was dying in front of her eyes. And, and yet, in spite of the very best medicines that we had at the time, there was, you know, we, we couldn't do much more to help her. And she found it very very peaceful, very, very helpful. Uh, it was a piece by Jacqueline Dupre was was, was playing it, actually. And um, the Elgar uh, uh, Cello Concerto. Oh, yes, beautiful piece. She actually exemplified what a lot of uh, patients find and a lot of, of their relatives find, that uh, you have to sort of think other things than just thinking about your disease because clearly it's the sort of disease which can clearly dominate your life and you need to have uh, to channel your, your life interests, as it were, into, into other ways. And music, I think, is a great example of that. And certainly for me, it's always been something which I, I, I joke slightly, but it, it, it helps to keep me sane because it's sort of something which is completely different in a way from the rest of what I do. Uh, and it just sort of takes me literally out of myself for, for a little time. It's lovely to come home in the evening. I was taught to play the guitar when I was a teenager. Uh, and just, it's nice to sit down, uh, play a few songs to myself and strum away and forget the cares of the day. It's, I find it very therapeutic. Well, you know, your comment there is reminiscent of a, a very um, eminent architect, Christopher Wilkinson, we interviewed for a podcast recently and he was explaining the pressures of delivering a major building like, you know, the Battersea Parisation or the Dyson headquarters. And as a counterbalance to that, to reduce his stress, he loves to paint and he paints every day. So what you're saying as well as listening to music, you know, heals the doctor as well as helping the patient. As doctors and, and nurses and, and pharmacists and any clinician, we have a lot of patient contact, of course, and we need to keep ourselves well so we can help other people. Absolutely. So, I mean, but you also have a, a very fun side to your music and um, you've had nearly, is it nine albums now, um, Dave, that you've produced? Cloud Nine being the last? Well, it, it, all, it all got started very early, as I suspect it probably does with a lot of people. Uh, my father used to sing in, in uh, the local synagogue choir. He had a fabulous voice. My mum was, was a great student of popular music from the, really from the mid-1920s to the mid-1950s. She really had almost an, an encyclopedic knowledge of those songs. And I, I grew up listening to her singing, actually, as well as my dad singing. And, and I think that, that was the... Um, uh, that that was what what got me started. But I think also as a child, my parents used to send my sister and I to a holiday school holiday camp, which was often held up in in Worcestershire, in in Morven or near Morven. And uh, we'd be there for two weeks, and it was it was great fun. We used to go with our friends. And at the end of the two week period, there was always a little show that was put on mainly by the supervisors. Uh, but the kids were encouraged to uh, write bits of music, write popular, rewrite as it was popular songs, and then to perform them in the context of this show. So I was probably 11, 12, 13, 14 at that time. So I got into the habit, really, of, of rewriting the words to popular songs. And when I became a doctor, most of the places that I worked, there was usually a Christmas party or Christmas show of some sort, and there had been a medical school as well. So again, I, I, I found that I had, let's say, a small talent to amuse, uh, usually by rewriting the words of popular songs and then performing them either on my own or, or with other colleagues, uh, which was great fun. And then in my 20s, uh, together with another group of colleagues, they were outside of medicine, actually, we formed a little acting group, and we used to write these little musical comedies. Uh, and the great thing about the London theatre in those days, I I don't know if it's true anymore, but you could hire small theatres. Uh, for example, the Mayfair Theatre in London has, has a beautiful, had a beautiful little theatre in its basement, so it sits 300 people. What we used to do was to approach various charities and say, look, we, we're running a little show. We're not going to charge you anything, but, you know, you and this could be a way for you to raise some money for your charity. If we put on the show, you sell the tickets, you know, 
we'll have the fun of acting on a, on a professional stage and then you get the, the pleasure of raising some funds for your charity. So it was a, a mutually beneficial sort of thing, really. And so throughout my 20s, uh, I did a number of these these shows on, on the sort of professional stage in London. And it was it was it was terrific um, fun to do. Uh, always challenging to sort of come up with something which was was amusing and make the songs good. But it was helped by the fact that my oldest friend, who had been a medical student with me, uh, then uh, gave up medicine and went to become a professional musician. He's one of the leading uh, session guitarists in the UK, a lovely guy called Mitch Dalton. And that's how it all got started. And and then uh, one of the guys who I was working with at the Middlesex Hospital, a lovely guy called Peter Lydiard, who was a professor of immunology, turned out to be also a very good musician. And we, we, we began to combine forces and we started performing at Christmas parties. And Peter actually is a very good sound recording technician. And about 15 years ago, he said, you know, you, you've done so many songs now, David, we should, we should, we should make a CD. I thought, well, that sounds fun. I don't know how you do that. He said, no, I can do that. I'll do that for you. So we, we began recording and... Um, by that time, I was beginning to recruit one or two people who I used to work with when I realized they had good voices. And it's now a sort of standing joke in the department that whenever I do a job interview, towards the end, I will slip in the words, oh, by the way, can you sing? <laughs> and it's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing how many doctors have actually got very good voices. So over the years, I, I have acquired uh, a number of, we call them Davettes. So the group is called Lupus Dave and the Davettes. And it's, it's great fun. Um, I, I write or rewrite all the words. Uh, and then I and, and Mitch and, and Peter play most of the, the, the music. Uh, and then the girls come in and we do re little recording sessions, uh, usually actually at UCL itself or at Peter's house down, down in Kent. Uh, and Peter now very very adept at sort of getting getting these songs to sound really really good and as you said we've just now brought out our ninth album so I've now achieved my my little target of a few years ago rewriting 100 songs so I feel like I could re retire with dignity now <laughs> Oh wow that's amazing well I did listen to Cloud9 when you sent it to me and it really I encourage everybody to have a little listen because there was one song um, Homeschooling and you'd change the words um, I don't recall exactly you'll, you'll tell me now in a minute it was, an, it was an old Tom Lehrer song. Uh, Tom Lehrer was, was certainly one of my heroes. He's still alive. He's over 90 now. And he was a very famous uh, satirist in the sort of, uh, mainly in the 60s, I think, is when he wrote most of his stuff. A very, very talented guy. He also happened to be a mathematician at Harvard. So a really super talented mm. guy. Uh, and and th this song was originally called the MLF Lullaby, but uh, it seemed to me that it worked very well to to try to capture the the awful experience that uh, that many people have experienced up and down the country, trying to homeschool young children who don't particularly wish to be schooled at home. Thank you very much. So it was it was quite fun to, to write it. And in particular, I had my, my daughter who's homeschooling uh, my granddaughter at the moment. Uh, so her, her, my granddaughter has mentioned gets mentioned a couple of times, which she's I think sort of proud, but <laughs> she's not quite sure. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> Well, maybe when she's 30, she'll look back and smile a bit. But I felt that that album really resonated with what's going on in, in the world around us. And we are emerging from a pandemic. And you being at UCLH, I mean, that is one of the epicentres of what's going on in London in terms of COVID. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's been a very grim time. Even, even four to six weeks ago, we had over about 250 COVID positive patients uh, on our wards, over 100 on the intensive care unit. Uh, all the junior doctors in in my department were taken off to help out on those walls because you know the the, the pressure was so great. My, my colleagues had done a truly uh, remarkable job in trying to come to terms with both managing the patients and uh, uh, managing their own uh, anxieties and fears. Because certainly when when this first hit a year ago and there were no vaccines, it was it was a very tough thing to be doing. Uh, and many of my colleagues have been infected. Um, this virus is curious that it. it, it 
principally seems to go for people over the age of 60, 70 with an underlying disease. But even so, um, we've seen in the press, and, and you, most people I suspect know, younger doctors, younger nurses, uh, younger physiotherapists who've got this and died from this. So it's, it's really been very traumatic for, for everybody, not obviously not just in the medical community, but uh, but it, it is hard when you see colleagues who you know and respect and, and like very much, and you realise just how sick they are, and some of them sadly have died very, very tragic. No, it is tragic. And maybe we can use music to listen and, and, you know, help ourselves feel a bit better at this time, not just, you know, our patients, but the doctors and general public. I agree. Absolutely. I think music is, has, has a very useful part to play here. Yeah. And, you know, not everybody is a talented musician like you, David, or other people or Selena Gomez or any of these wonderful names. But, you know, what can normal people do to bring music into their lives? Uh, well, uh, obviously listening to it, uh, I think is probably the simplest thing to do. And, and nowadays, you know, it's it's easy availability uh, through the, the wonders of the Internet it makes it so much easier to to get access to. Uh, if you're slightly older, uh, like I am, you tend to rely more on things like CDs and even vinyl records, which are most people in the country probably won't even heard of, but uh, which I still have a large collection of uh, from uh, uh, my dissolute youth. Uh, but uh, I think listening to music is, is probably the most important thing. But actually, making music is is even more fun. I, I've, I've always enjoyed doing that with uh, with, with friends and colleagues. Uh, harder to do, obviously, in lockdown. Uh, in fact, recording this this album was was a bit of a challenge, not least because uh, one of the singers lives in Portugal, uh, a lovely lady called Raquel, and we're very fortunate that her boyfriend is a sound recording engineer. So. Uh, we were able to record the, some background tapes, as it were, in London, send them electronically to Portugal, uh, where Raquel's voice was added by her boyfriend, who then sends them back to London. And they had to go backwards and forwards two or three times. But it is astonishing what you what you could do these days that clearly we couldn't have done very easily 10 years ago. Well, I think this is the ultimate of art, science and technology blending into one to give a beautiful outcome. Wonderful fusion, you're right. Absolutely right. And, you know, one of you were telling us a short while ago about how you performed in some of the most famous stages in, in London as a medical student. It was fabulous. But you also performed on another stage, um, the Globe. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, uh, and it, it was it was a remarkable evening, and we we performed over the years in some some lovely venues. But I think this this was certainly the most famous, and uh, certainly I think the most memorable. Uh, we had a fantastic opportunity given to us to raise money for uh, a local arthritis charity that uh, I and you are, are associated with, uh, which is the discretionary fund charity, the, the, the rheumatology discretionary fund charity at UCL. And we had a chance to put on a fundraiser, uh, and I and the group performed uh, five songs. Uh, on this on the stage of the what's called the underglobe underneath the famous Shakespeare um, theatre itself and you know Millie, I, I like to think that by the end the, the bard was turning in his grave to applaud <laughs> I'd like to think that he was applauding well we were all <laughs> applauding anyway and we raised a lot of money that night David didn't we yeah 70,000 pounds it was, it was absolutely wonderful mm. uh, and, and the, the money we used to, to both for patient education and for research into lupus which we carry out uh, at uh, University College uh, and it also enables us to uh, to support the, the, the careers of, of young and aspiring scientists and young Positions, uh, but patient education is also very important to us, and we 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 make we are able through the through this charity to make a a number of educational materials available to our patients, which which is great. So it's a, it's a very successful charity; has been running for thirty years now, uh, and I think it's been very helpful both to patients and to uh, young scientists and young physicians interested in lupus and and the related diseases. Well, I can certainly attest to that because I believed in it so much that I agreed to become a trustee of this charity, and I think it's really powerful. And what people don't know who are listening is is you know, 
how much you've actually personally given. You know, you've been working, um, doing sessions, not accepting payment for it, putting the payment directly into the charity, which I think is is just an unbelievable testament to your commitment to your patients. Well, well that, fortunately, I, I don't have too many really expensive habits. I, I have no yachts. I have no house in the country. My, my, my only extravagance is my Spurs season ticket. And that, that's like a, a charitable donation itself, really. I, I give the money <laughs> into the season. I know it's going to be painful. I accept the fact that it's going to be painful and I just get up with it. Well, <laughs> listen, you are an inspiration, David. And I hope that we will put up a link to the Rheumatology Discretionary UCL charity because people might listen and be inspired to donate because it is a very worthwhile cause. Very wonderful, Millie. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you. And indeed, any of the national lupus um, charities as well, we'll also put a indeed, link to those. Well, look, David, thank you so much for giving up your morning. It's been a real, real joy to talk to you today. You've inspired us about the power of music and um, how it helps patients, doctors, every sort of clinicians, nurses, pharmacists, everybody. Um, but most importantly, how it's helped you survive a long and very um, productive career. Millie, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been lovely talking to you, as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Well, thank you for listening to Live Longer, the podcast. It's been a, such an enjoyable experience and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Tune in next week when we'll be interviewing Mr. Dan White, a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who spent quite a lot of time in 2015 at Cambridge University, photographing Stephen Hawking and doing a pictorial essay on Gonville and Keyes College. And that will be a fascinating discussion. He'll be dialing in from Kansas, Missouri. Thanks for listening. And if you want to get in touch, please feel free to email us at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Bye for now.